When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sportacost Football Stories podcast. My name is Craig Hansen, and today I'm joined by Scott McCarthy, a lifelong Brighton and Hove Albion supporter and football writer who's been covering the Seagulls since 2009 on wearebrighton.com and for various other news outlets. He's followed the club through thick and thin across four divisions and four different home stadiums, and will surely have a story or two to tell about his beloved club. I can't wait to get into all of that today on the Sportacos Football Stories podcast. Hey Scott, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. I just got back from Warsaw. Just watched the mighty Legia Warsaw beat uh, Spartak Moscow away from home. Well, I didn't watch it live in person, of course, but... Watched it on TV with a bunch of polls, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. Caught up with a bit of Champions League action. What about yourself? Did you watch any of the games last night? Um, I didn't know. I've sort of been flat out working at the minute. It's non-stop. You know, transfer window shuts, games coming thick and fast. It's just endless at the minute. Okay, so first thing I wanted to get into with you today, Scott, we normally like to ask our guests a little bit about their beginnings as a fan. So I wondered if you could just introduce me to the the first game you went to as a Brighton fan. I know that you've, um, I know that Brighton have had a lot of change over the last 30 years, 30 or 40 years. So where, where were you? Who took you? How old were you? All that kind of stuff when you first went. Um, That's quite a difficult question to answer because um, I got taken to my first game when I was uh, about two years old by my parents. So obviously I've got absolutely no recollection of that. It was in, the, I think it was in the 1989-90 season. Um year later, we got to the playoff final. I can sort of remember going to Wembley as like a, uh, would have been, yeah, as a, as a three-year-old. Um, I remember sort of having my face painted and remember it being absolutely massive compared to the Goldstone and just it being a quite a, you know, everyone was excited because it was a good day out and everyone was upset because we got dicked by Notts County. Um and I guess I sort of remember, sort of can recall actually going to games from about 1994, which was a, a pretty bad time for it to happen, really, because that was the season before um, the Goldstone Ground got sold. We 
nearly went out of business. We were playing in the bottom division, finished second bottom of the football league, and so yeah, it's been quite a journey from from there all the way to the to the top, the Premier League. Um, through four home grounds, I've been to the Goldstone. I went to home games in Gillingham. Uh, season ticket at Withdean, season ticket at the Amex. So yeah, <laughs> seen it all, I guess you could say. What was the story in Gillingham? Did you have one of those Coventry type situations where you were? losing the ground and you had to go there for a season or two seasons. What happened there? Yeah, so essentially um, we were taken over. Brighton was about to go out of business because of unpaid tax bills, et cetera, et cetera, in about 1993. And a businessman from Lancashire called Bill Archer paid £56 to buy the club, which at the time seemed brilliant. He kept us in business. He was quite rich, fantastic. Turned out um, in 1995 that he had sold the ground to developers. Not only had he done that, but there used to be what was called a non-profit clause in the Articles of Association. So if Brighton went out of business, um, no one individual or any individuals could profit from the club. Any money that was in the bank account had to go to local Sussex non-league clubs or charities, basically. He removed that clause so that when he sold the ground for eight or nine million, he could then personally take the money along with um, David Bloch, the chief executive, and Greg Stanley, who uh, was the president. So we basically, supporters found out about that through a stroke of luck, really. Um, An accountant named Paul Samra looked into the Articles of Association. They realised that the ground had been sold. Um, so two years later, we were basically forced out of our home. We moved to Gillingham for two years while um, a man who took over, Dick Knight, took over from Bill Archer after a very, very long battle to, to get him out of the club. Played at Gillingham for two years. We then came back to Withdean Stadium, which was an athletics track, held 8,000 people, no roof, absolutely ghastly to watch football. And that was meant to be a temporary stay which ended up lasting 11 years before the Amex was built. And then, yeah, we've sort of been flying ever since. So the club was, you know, it came so close to going out of business. It doesn't even bear thinking about it. To be where we are now is, is a massive achievement. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of stories of clubs going, I don't know, sort of through the leagues and from League One and double promotions, but that kind of changed. I mean, the stadium that you're in now in the Amex, it's state of the art, right? It's beautiful, it's something to be proud of. And, to think that you came from 11 years playing in that ground, which you said basically wasn't even fit for watching football. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I think we played Huddersfield once and Lou Macari was their manager and he said it was like playing a pre-season game in Scandinavia, running track around it, no roof. <laughs> I mean, when it rained, you got absolutely soaked. It was just, it was grim. Um, it was a miracle really that, you know, the club survived that because there was no income coming in really. I mean, 5,000 fans and then, we managed to survive it. And then Tony Bloom came along, who's our current chairman, obviously very, very rich. He paid for the Amex, paid for a, a squad that was good enough to win League One, paid for a squad good enough to get in the Premier League. And now we've got a squad that, you know, is, is competing in the Premier League. It's, it's uh, There's other clubs who've done it, obviously, but I think it's just such a, a massive turnaround that you wouldn't have thought possible even, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, it could be the biggest one because, like I said, we've seen stories like that, but not quite on that level that almost out of business, almost out of the league, that the stadium issue. But I guess um, I wanted to ask you quickly again about the, the Gillingham thing. So I didn't realise Gillingham was so close to Brighton. So 
were they is it is it close is it a were they like a local that's <laughs> no, a weird it's, situation it's not close at all it was a a 75 minute journey one way 75 oh, 75 mile journey back so we were you know there was 2000 fans going every week at most doing 150 miles to and you can't get there directly so if you're driving you're up the M23 along the M25 down the M2 if you're going by train you're into London back out of London it was you know arguably the worst place we could have gone you know, we, well, I think we tried to move in with Portsmouth, but that didn't happen. And then Mill was muted, which would have been a lot easier because it's, you know, a couple of stops up the line on the train. That that never happened either. So, yeah, it was – and it, this was before Gillingham's ground was redeveloped. I mean, it's not great now, the Priestfield, but back then it was an absolute hole. So it wasn't like we were going somewhere nice for our, for our hour and a half journey to get to a home game. Unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about – being a Brighton fan as a kid during that time, so you mentioned the the kind of the trials and tribulations and being not only lower league football, but you know on on the precipice of dropping out of the league and these crazy stadium changes. Did you find that most of the kids in the school also followed Brighton, or was there a lot of kind of you know Chelsea fans or or whoever the the big London team was at the time? Was there were you one of the few in the in the school, or or did most of the kids stay loyal to the local team? No, I was. I think there was maybe you know two kids in my year at school who supported Brighton. Everyone else was Man United because obviously that was just before they won the treble. So yeah, Liverpool as well, and yeah, and the London clubs. But now it's it's such a difference because I mean, you used to go out in Brighton and you would see when I was a kid and you'd see nobody walking around wearing a Brighton shirt. These days, there's Brighton shirts everywhere and. Again, you know, that's that's not even, you know, that that's since we've had the Amex, that's happened. It's it's absolutely mind-blowing to see it. And the, because the potential is there for the, the club. I mean, there's no other club. The nearest club's north is Palace. That's 50 miles away. You go the other way to Pompey, that's 50 miles. Sussex is a huge catchment area for for, for building up support. And it's, it's good to see it's finally happening. Yeah, well, I guess that's probably the reason why Bloom invested, right? He must have seen. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's many reasons, but he probably saw that there's a huge potential, right, for for making money for for generating fans. And not only is there not a lot of competition, I guess, with local rivals, but also it's a beautiful city. It's you know, it's kind of like. I mean, I love Brighton. I think it's famous. I would say, right, in the in the country for being an amazing place to go. So it seems like a perfect club to invest in. Yeah, and sort of, and we do get a lot of you know. A lot of people coming over from one of the guys who writes for our website is Dutch. He um, was a Feyenoid supporter. Now he's, you know, came to Brighton once, fell in love with the place, supports Brighton. Now it's, it has that effect on people. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. Um, but I, I guess um, another thing I wanted to to ask was all all football fans are fickle. We're all fickle, you know. We all kind of um, forget about the past and and the hardships, and we just you know, we've been in the Premier League for four or five years now. We want more, more signings, more trans. We should be getting up there. We should be eighth or whatever. Is it easier for you to kind of just bask in how brilliant it is right now to be a Brighton fan when you look back over all the years and all the stuff that you've seen? Yeah, and it's actually very, very interesting that because there's been quite a bit of debate recently. Um, obviously, fans of my generation who've done the Goldstone, done with Dean, we've never had it so good. So you know, when we lose a few games, it, it's not the end of the world. But we're at the stage now where we've been at the Amex for 10 years. So, you know, a kid who goes to his first game at the Amex was 
eight years old. They're 18 now. They've known nothing but Brighton B success. We've had one season where we struggled in the championship under Sammy Hippier. And other than that, it's just been progress, progress, progress. So when we do hit a speed bump, you know, when we, we do lose games, it's, it's unusual to them. And it's, it's, it's actually sparked a little bit of a divide because you've got some fans saying, stop moaning, it's never been this good. Another fan saying, well, you know, how long is this going to go on? Are we going to be saying, you know, we could end up relegated to League One in 10 years' time or whatever. Will we still be saying, well, it's better than when we were, you know, bottom of the football league? So it's, it's interesting that there's that sort of divide between, between the generations. And I don't think there's any other club in the country who's got that because our, our um, attendances went from, you know, 8,000 to nearly 30,000 overnight when we moved to the Amex. So the crowd quadrupled. You've then got people who, and that's happened. It's a bit of a sore point with some Brighton fans. People will say, oh, you know, half the Brighton crowds used to support Arsenal or Brighton are just their second team. But I don't see that as a bad thing because if you've got Chelsea supporters, Man United supporters coming to the Amex now, they take their kids, their kids are brought up as Brighton fans. And that's, you know, that's how you grow a football club. Yeah, I think it's it, it's it's a fantastic thing. And, and it must be the quality of football as well must be must be crazy for you because I go and watch my local team Warsaw, who I mean you probably have heard of because of the League Two days and and well back in the day Division Two Division Three days, and um and you know it's it's not it's not bad but you you go and watch a game at three o'clock there and then you you come home and watch the five thirty kickoff or whatever Liverpool versus Chelsea it's like watching a different like you're on like you're in space how what's it like watching this the level of player that you've got now. And the style of football, looking back over, back in the the dark old days, it must have been hoofball. It's crazy. Week. I mean, when we played Brentford on Saturday, we had ten full internationals starting in our starting lineup. That's never happened before for Brighton ever. And I, I mean, I just remember, you know, we used to. I remember when England beat Germany five one in Munich. We were Brighton were playing Northampton that day, and you know, here we are. 20 years later and we've got internationals over the place. We've had Ben White play for England, Lewis Dunk play for England. It's just, it's mind blowing. Yep. It's a, it's an amazing thing. One, one thing I wanted to touch on, on with you especially was the rivalries. So I know, like you said, it's not the kind of place where you've got a, a bunch of teams really close together and there's not, I guess, so much that local rivalry. And for a lot of people, you've probably been asked this question a million times, but I still don't quite understand it, even though I've watched YouTube videos about it. Can you explain the palace thing? Because you've got a, the rivalry with Palace. It, for me, it's it's a bit mental. What 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 exactly is that? Um, it all sort of started in the seventies. Uh, we were both in the old Division Three, so what is now League One. And Palace appointed Terry Venables as their manager. Uh, we appointed Alan Muller as ours, and they had a massive falling out when they were at Spurs as players over who got the captaincy. So that they basically had an individual rivalry, and then. Um, we started climbing the divisions together. So we played each other, I think, five times in one season because there was FA Cup replays. And there was one game at Stamford Bridge, a second FA Cup replay, where um, Palace won 1-0. But Brian Horton scored a penalty for us and the referee made him retake it for encroachment, even though it was the Brighton player encroaching. So, uh, sorry, it was the Palace player encroaching. So there was no advantage gained. Um, Mallory went mad at the end Palace fan throws hot coffee over him he threw a five on the floor started flicking the V's at the Palace fans going that's all you're worth and 
it's sort of that's where it all started and then obviously Palace were called the Eagles they'd come down shout Eagles Eagles that's where our nickname mm-hmm. comes from because Brighton fans started replying with Seagulls Seagulls um, mm-hmm. yeah then we ended up in the top flight together and it's just sort of escalated from there um, funny enough Chris Hewton's brother Henry Hewton putting an absolute horror tackle one year to break Jerry Ryan, one of the most popular Brighton players ever. He broke his leg, never played again. There was a game where there was five penalties in in one match and I think three of them were missed. And it just sort of, yeah, it sort of escalated from that. So it's not it's not a derby or a rivalry based on location. It's based on a, a set of historical events that all sort of have led to there being such hatred between the, the two clubs. But from the sound of it, equally bitter through the years. And do you think that the current generation, you mentioned there, those younger fans that have only ever seen the Amex, is it still as strong for them? Do they get it? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, arguably, I think it's stronger for them than it is for sort of people like me who are caught in the middle because I didn't see my first Palace game until 2002 because obviously they were, you know, when we were right down the bottom, they were enjoying their time in the Premier League and they were miles apart. So I went the best part of well over 10 years supporting Brighton without ever seeing a Palace game or you know understanding really what the rivalry was about and talk about a first game my first Palace game we lost 5-0 at Selhurst so that was <laughs> quite an introduction but yeah so then we we played each other sort of sporadically after that and it's only since we we went into the championship really that the games have become more regular the rivalries you know kicked up again and a whole new generation sort of understands it more I think well, moving on a little bit now, kind of further on in your in your journey from not so, not so much when you were a little kid, but maybe into your adolescence. Um, I understand that you, I think you not only watch them at home, but you've you've been away with them a fair bit as well, Brighton over the years. Yeah, yeah, I I think sort of the the League One title season, I did basically every away game. I it's a bit more difficult in the Premier League now, I'm a bit older and stuff and now I have a commitments, but I still get to to a fair few games. And yeah, in, in a way, I much prefer away games to home games because it's, you know, the day out, the can of beer on the train at eight o'clock in the morning. And we're, we're sort of quite lucky because we're lucky in a way, but unlucky in another way because there's no other clubs around us. Every sort of away game further north in London is a bit of a, a day out and an adventure. It's not like we've, you know, got four or five games on our doorstep to go to, which are practically light home games. There's nothing like that for us. Yeah, you're you kind of like on an island in a way, aren't you? Everything's far away for you. So you get that adventure atmosphere and you get the better atmosphere in the ground, don't you? Because away support's always a bit more, you know, intense, I think, than sometimes home support can be. It's only the hardcores go away, right? Yeah, it's sort of... I mean, when we've had days out, like... Speaking of speaking of Walsall, like when we won the League One title at Walsall, that was just incredible. You know, three thousand Brighton fans were there, and everyone's been, you know, drinking beer on the train, expecting that we're going to be crowned champions today, and stuff like that. I think is just it's fantastic. Give me that over a you know a Reading away in the Championship or whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that's what I wanted to come on to now. What what would you say is your favourite ground away ground that you've been to? And maybe it could be something like that where it's based on a particular memory that you experienced there or just generally you've been to this ground over and over through through the years, but for some reason or another, you actually you just really like going to that ground. I absolutely love Carlisle away, which is going to sound mad for a support of a Premier League side, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, it's because it's just, 
you know, it was such an adventure. It's it's a five o'clock train out of Brighton. You're not getting there till midday. The train goes through, you know, the Peak District, the the Lake District, all the hills. You get there, you've you've had God knows how many cans when you get there, and it's just sort of. It was always an adventure, and it I always like Carlisle as a place because there's good pubs and. I mean, the stories you could tell, there was one year when we went all the way there and I, you know, I drank so much on the train up. I fell asleep on the toilet for 20 minutes in the ground. I had to check the score the next day on Sky Sports to see what we'd done because I couldn't remember the game. We drew nil-nil though, so it wasn't like I missed anything. <laughs> but just days like that, I just, I mean, in a way, I'd, I'd like us to go back down to, you know, League One and League Two because the away days are so much more fun. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it, it becomes a little bit like, obviously you want to watch the game and the game's obviously important, but in a way it's all the stuff around it that makes it, makes the day, right? The trip, like you said, it, it's not just about watching the match itself, it's about the whole experience. Yeah, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love going, you know, it's a, it's not to see Brighton play at places like Anfield and Old Trafford and because you go to places like that and you can feel the history of the stadium it's, and you think, wow, all the greats who've played here and stuff. But at the same time, I mean, I remember going to Tranmere about four days before Christmas in 2008 and we lost 1-0 to a last-minute goal. That put us in the League One relegation zone. It was absolutely chucking it down with rain. So me and two of my mates, were we were outside the away end, just didn't have a clue where we were going, like arguing with each other. Car pulls up, this Tranmere fan, jump in, lads, I'll give you a lift to the station. In we get, we're back to the station, train back to Liverpool and then we end up on the train back from Liverpool to London with the um, like the UK women's volleyball team in our carriage. So <laughs> football may have been rubbish, 90 minutes of rubbish, but a, a fantastic day out. Yeah, the, the, the kind of stories that you get, I guess, and the kind of... I remember one time... I don't know if you'd remember this guy, because I'm like... Well, we're about the same age, I think, but still, like, maybe no one else watched this, but do you remember a guy called Pete Waterman? He no. um he did like what was that thing before X Factor? I think it was called Pop Stars when I was about seven. And um anyway, he was on TV. He was like a judge on this Simon. He's next to Simon Cowell and stuff like that. I think when I was like six or seven, and we watched uh, Warsaw play Coventry away, and he was next to me in the stand. It was really cool, <laughs> and he was on TV all the time. And I remember I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, it's Pete from TV, but <laughs> it's. The kind of the kind of weird things that you can uh, experience, I guess. But I wanted you to describe Brighton as a fan base as well, because um, you know, different fans have different reputations. You know, whether they're deserved or not. I mean, I think Millwall are kind of notorious for, you know, rightly or wrongly for for in a negative way. Man City, I think at least nowadays, kind of you know, no one's go. You know, it's no one's going. It's half empty. There's not very much passion, at least since they left Main Road. Liverpool with the whole, with the with the cop and everything, and with the you'll never walk alone and all that. Do you think the Brighton fans have like a particular identity and um and how would you describe that? How would you describe them as a as a group of people? It's a good away day and a friendly place to go. So I guess we're quite a friendly club. Whether that's a a good thing or not is obviously up for debate because you want your ground to be intimidating, like Millwall. I mean, speaking of Millwall, we played our FA Cup quarter final there, and it's probably the best atmosphere I've ever been in in my life. 18,000 in the den was just, it sounded like, you know, 50,000 in there. It was absolutely crazy. So, yeah, I, I guess it's quite hard to put a label on us. And that also comes down to the fact that, you know, the the fan base has changed since we moved to the Amex because of the 
the, the size it's grown to. Before that, we always used to be known as a, I guess, a campaigning fan base because you know we were one of the first clubs to go through this whole nightmare ownership thing, and we fought to save to save our club. So we then we you know we supported Wrexham when they had their troubles, Plymouth, Blackpool, teams like that, Charlton. We've always been you know willing to lend a hand and help out where we can to try and try and keep clubs in business because we know what it's like to be on the other end of it. And you kind of, I guess you kind of laid down the blueprint for a lot of that stuff as well. Kind yeah. Of pioneered it. Yeah. Cause I mean, before, I mean, Maystone slipped out of business and all the shot went, that was a little bit different because it was more financial than, than bad ownership. But we were the first club really to, for an owner to look at us and think, right, there's an opportunity here to, to asset strip an institution and profit mm-hmm. the money. And I guess, no businessman saw it as an opportunity before because the Premier League didn't exist. And before the Premier League, there wasn't all this money. Nobody would have thought, no, no middle-class businessman's thinking, I want to invest in football because they probably didn't understand the, the opportunities there. Once it happened to us, you know, it happened to Doncaster very shortly after, similar sort of thing. You know, their chairman tried to, I think he tried to burn down the main stands so that he could develop the ground. It was just crazy. And then obviously, you know, Charlton, the Oysters at Blackpool, it's all sort of, have stemmed from us and it's really it's a bit of a miracle isn't it that the only you know barrier the only team really that have that have fallen by the wayside in in the last 25 years because there's been so many unscrupulous owners try it yeah obviously it's a tragedy but like you said it's a miracle they're the only one and i feel like i mean i don't know if they have if they are looking at that or changing it but they really need to be more careful with the kind of people they let come in and run clubs because not only those examples, but way less catastrophic, but stuff like, you know, Venkies uh, at Blackburn and um, what was the guy at Cardiff who wanted to change the whole crest and colour scheme and everything? Yeah, he looked like a like a Bond villain, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, I can't remember his name, but there's, there's so many of these examples of just the, the, the pe- kind of people they let come in just doing crazy stuff. But um, but to go back to the, um, the Brighton fans, do you feel that... Um, now you're in the Amex and not only Brighton, but in general as kind of the, the upper echelons of the game in England, especially in the Premier League, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's a little bit, it's a good thing for the most part, I think, but it's a little bit like sterile, I guess now, a little bit like Disney-fied a little bit. And I think that's a good thing because I do think, you know, you want it to be, you know, families to go. You don't want to have trouble or any nonsense like that. But but you sometimes, you know, as a fan, you could look back and think maybe in the past it was a bit more intense and passionate and stuff. But do you think that, would that be accurate in regards to Brighton? Or do you think that at the Amex, there's still just as much of a roar or even more, maybe, passion, noise, and everyone's really into it? No, it's, it's very, very sterile unless it's sort of, I think it's like that everywhere there, unless it's a massive game. So when Palace come down, for example, yeah, there's a hell of an atmosphere. Um when we played Sheffield Wednesday in the playoff semi-final second leg of the year, we should have gone up. Uh, we went, we'd gone to Hillsborough four days earlier and had four players come off injured, which was completely unheard of. So we finished with ten. Obviously, you know, there the players. Some of the players were rushed back and they were, you know, walking wounded, limping along. And the answer that night was absolutely incredible to try and, you know, push them on. So yeah, it is. You know, the MX is the sort of place where you can get a good atmosphere, but it. It doesn't happen too often, although interestingly, it has been better since lockdown. And I think that's because I think people used to take for granted, you know, rocking up there every every you know two weeks to watch football. It was just sort of a it, it didn't seem like a 
you know, you, you just sort of expected it to happen. Now people have realised, whoa, it's been 18 months. Let's actually go along and enjoy ourselves, make an atmosphere and, and see what happens because the Watford game was a great atmosphere there. Yeah, definitely. We all got complacent, I think, with that. Maybe now people will um, will appreciate it a little bit more. But yeah, I, I don't know why. It seems like in other... I don't want to say other countries because there's not that many examples of it, but I guess I don't, I've only been to a couple of Bundesliga games in person, but I've watched a load on TV. But it feels like, you know, there's loads of money over there and the stadiums are state of the art. You know, they're modern. It's beautiful. But they still have this really kind of, I don't know, really good fan culture. It's loud, like the, the games I've been to at least. And I just, um, I don't know, I wonder why that is. It feels like, some grounds, I think, still have it, especially the the big ones like Anfield and Old Trafford and stuff. But then some others, I don't want to like, um, you know, just beat Man City all the time. You know what I mean? Because to be honest, they're kind of one of the clubs I follow. But it feels like, you know, you watch it on TV and it's like, I don't know, why is it so quiet? And why is half the ground empty when you're playing like, you know, the second or third best team in Germany? It's a massive game. Why do you think that, I don't know. We're losing a little bit of the passion over here. Do you think we are? And if so, why do you think? Why do you think so? I think it's sort of. It goes back to the. It depends the sort of what game it is. I mean, I can't imagine the Etihad. If that was a semi-final, it's not empty, is it? There's an atmosphere there. It's yeah. And I think it's. I think it's sort of maybe an element of boredom because you know City. When City first got in the Champions League, this is all fresh. This is new. You know, fantastic. We're playing in Europe. It's unbelievable. Now they've been doing it for a decade and they're playing, you know, Red Bull Leipzig, who they only played a couple of seasons ago. Is there sort of that element of excitement? And going back to what you said about Germany, I think the the major difference, obviously, is in cost because yeah. you're, you're attracting a... Not that I want to sort of put class labels or anything on it, but if you're charging supporters £10 or £20 to come in, they can pay four pounds for a beer, drink throughout the game. It's very you're attracting a very, very different sort of person to the one who goes to the Premier League and, for example, pays forty-five pound for a match ticket at Brighton. It's it's it comes yeah. down to price, I think, and and you know that's not something that will be fixed because as long as there's a demand for people to pay those prices and as people are paying them, why on earth would you lower them? No, 100% you're right. I, I, didn't, I didn't really think of that. and It's true, and I don't really see a remedy anyway because I don't want to, like, you know, alienate families and kids and stuff. But I feel like in the past when I was a kid, you did have a lot of... You still had kids there, but it was just... It was different. I mean, in, in the Warsaw ground, we had, like, the family stand. It was, like, dedicated to the families kind of thing. And then you'd have the behind the goal where it's really, really, you know, hardcore. And then the other stand would be kind of mid, and then you'd have the away. But... But yeah, I don't know exactly how we fix that, but it just feels like we're kind of, yeah, it's changing a little bit. But but anyway, to get back to, to Brighton and the fans, I feel like Brighton have um, a really good reputation as well as being like a really inclusive club, really progressive club. Um, do you think that's accurate? And and I guess if so, how long has that been the case? Was it always like that? Or is it something new? It sort of came to light when um, Brighton basically got the, you know, Brighton's always been quite a liberal city. It's always been welcome to anyone. But when it basically got branded as, you know, the gay capital of, of Britain, that was when we started getting a lot of homophobic abuse from other fans. We'd go to away games and there'd be all the, does your boyfriend know you're here? And you know, other unspeakable chance that I'm not going to mention. Um, and from there, I think that the, cl- like the club's answer to that was, okay, people think it's about us. 
let's become like it. So it, it did sort of become very, very inclusive. They do a lot on um, sort of football versus homophobia, the the Rainbow Laces campaign, stuff like that. And But I think that's just because of, you know, the city we are. Brighton is a very... I mean, some would say it's a bit too liberal. There's all, you know, all kinds of nonsense going on with people um, like pretending they're vegetables and, you know, stuff like that. So, <laughs> but yeah, and I think it's, and that's probably another reason why outsiders quite like Brighton as a football club because it, it reflects the, the city as it is. It stands for the city and there's not many, we're quite lucky because we're a one club city as well. So there's not many other places where, you would have an entire city supporting one team, which is obviously the dream for Brighton, maybe Newcastle. And that, that's about it, really. And or, or maybe, you know, Sunderland and, and places like that up north where it's a bit more bit more ingrained in them through, you know, the through family ties. But nothing sort of like, there isn't a club down the south that has that, whereas we've got the potential to do it. Uh, this might be a difficult thing to decide, but what would you say is your favourite memory watching Brighton in person, home or away? Because I know that often when I ask this question, someone will just say, oh, well, it was, you know, the, the big trophy we won like last year or something. But I don't think it's always that simple because it could be a case of the experience you had, something special that happened. But do you have a game that stands out that is your, your absolute favourite game you've watched in person? I guess the obvious one that most people would pick would be the first game at the Amex because, no, we'd waited 14 years since the Goldstone had shut to have our own grand and, it was absolutely perfect because we basically our new 1.5 million pound signing. We'd never paid over a million for a, a player before. Will Buckley went and scored in the 96th minute to win it, and that was, you know, that was a, a pretty pretty good day. But I think my favourite game is um, probably when we beat Chesterfield. So I was 13 or 14 to win the division uh, division three title as it was then. So that would be League Two now. Because, you know, Brighton had always been rubbish throughout my entire life. And that was the first time I'd ever seen us win a trophy. And it just felt like you know, this is what it's actually meant to be like to be a football fan, not to be not embarrassed, but not to, you know, not to be the only Brighton fan in your school. We we won a we won promotion, we'd won a trophy and it just it felt special. Yeah, it's a big day and I guess a big pitch invasion, probably. Yeah. and it Yeah. Uh, it was a Tuesday night. So I had school the next day as well. which was obviously made it that little bit. I was absolutely knackered the next day, and I I can still see the goal now. So Danny, um, Paul Watson swung over a corner. Danny Collett leaping like a salmon, running off to the fans. Everyone on the pitch, and then they presented the trophy afterwards. And that was only what four years after the goal had been sold. So you know, even four years ago, to see Brighton win a trophy would have seemed completely out of this world as well. And it was the start of you know we won we won the the uh, Division 2 title the next season. So it was the, the catalyst, really, for us to to start making moves up the league. And I know that the, obviously, the surely the Amex is probably, like, technically the best stadium that you've been in during these various stadium changes. But do you hold out any nostalgia, not for um, your couple of seasons in Gillingham, but for the old ground, or for the old grounds, I should say? Yeah, I think sort of, with Dean was obviously a complete dump and a nightmare, but... It was still, it was so quirky that, you know, there's stuff that people still miss. So there was a pub. It was your dump and your nightmare. Yeah, exactly. There was a there was a pub directly behind one of the stands, which was actually part of the ground. And it used to sell like a, 
and used to do a carvery for three ninety nine. So it's one of these like Toby carvery things, but a, a less good version of Toby carvery if Toby carvery can be ever considered good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, everyone would flock in there for you know a, a four pound carvery before the game, and there was a bacon baguette van in the ground, and it the bacon baguettes were absolutely horrible. We looked like something had died inside of it, but people still <laughs> hop back to. Oh yeah, do you remember the, the bacon baguette and stuff like there's one game when it absolutely chucked it down and the pictures of Quagmire and Richard Carpenter went to do a slide tackle against Luton and he just slipped and he just he must have been sliding for about forty yards, slid straight <laughs> off the pitch. And there was um yeah, and every time, you know, because it was an athletic stage and there's a hammer net behind the goal, if someone somehow put a shot in the hammer net, everyone would celebrate like it was a goal. There was a bloke who used to watch from the woods behind the stand, let off a firework whenever Brighton scored. He had to stop that, though, because one day the firework went awry, dropped into the stand, nearly set someone oh, on fire. God. Jeez. <laughs> like, memories like that, just... There's a certain element that, yeah, Withdean was absolutely ghastly, but at the same time, it was, you know, <laughs> they, were, they were bloody fun times as well. There's sometimes the the craziness with fireworks and flares and that can get a bit too far. When I was, um, I was speaking to a leggier guy the other the other night and he told me that he was harping back to the old days when um you know that they used to have crazy fans and you know all the 90s hooligans and all that and he said that not only did they used to light flares but this one guy used to have like a gun that he used to shoot them out of <laughs> and then if and, and it's like yeah, if it goes us. wrong it can just go like woo, and then drop just land in the middle of the people i mean imagine you're standing there watching the game and a flare drops on your head I went to the Moscow Derby in 2009 and people were just, they weren't even like flares off. People were actually letting off actual Catherine wheels like in the seats. And I don't really like fireworks. And I was absolutely crapping myself when this was going on, thinking we're going to get set on fire or it's going to explode or something. Yeah, that's too far. I'm all for a bit of, you know, intense kind of, you know, like you said, Millwall at the den or, you know, just kind of a, a real vibe. But I, I don't, I don't yeah, need. Not- not Russian Guy Fawkes. Exactly. I don't, you I don't need that going on next to me. Um, anyway, before um, before we come on to the current state of the squad, because I do want to touch on a little bit of that with you and a little bit about this season, we're going to take a very quick break. And we're back. So the first question I have as far as the modern era, bearing in mind that, again, I'm not a Brighton fan, so I know very little about Brighton. So I'm I'm here to like learn from you. What was the feeling among the fans in general? I know you can't speak for everyone, but in general, when Chris Hewton was let go, I mean, did people feel that it was too soon, or did they did they feel that even though they were sad about it, it was the right time? Yeah, I think it was. It's a funny one because normally when a manager gets sacked from a club, the supporters, you know, they're happy about it. Whereas with us, it was sort of it felt like a, a natural time for him to go because he takes him to the Premier League, which only Alan Muller had ever done before. He'd kept us there. But in that second half of the season, the turning point was um, a lot of people were moaning about, you know, the negative football and the defensive football, but we had to play that way to, to stay up. So it got to um, December, the end of December, and he moved from his 4-4-1-1 formation, which was, you know, by definition, quite negative. Murray up top by himself, Gross just behind. Tried to play 4-3-3, which didn't really work. And the problem that we had was that everyone could see within a month that it wasn't working 
but Houston persevered with it until basically the end of April. So we won only two games of 19 in the second half of that season, which obviously, if you replicate that over an entire campaign, that's relegation form. And I think, you know, Houston's biggest problem was that he was too stubborn to, he didn't want to admit, right, I've cocked up here by changing the way we play, changing the formation. He should have gone back to 4-4-1-1, which he knew worked a lot sooner than he did. And if, if he had done that, maybe he would have kept his job. I think the turning point for a lot of fans was we played Bournemouth and Cardiff at home in the space of 72 hours. Obviously, they were both relegation rivals. We got tonked 5-0 by Bournemouth. We then lost 2-0 to Cardiff. And it just looked like, you know, he'd run out of ideas. The players had run out of ideas. So I think come the end of that season... He he yeah he had to go and it was it was sad that he went but for the good of the club I think that we then had to obviously try and you can't just keep playing defensive football you've at some point you've got to to progress and move up the league which is why Potter was brought in and I think the only regret that a lot of Brighton fans would have had is that it wasn't announced beforehand that Houston would be going at the end of the season because Bruno retired in our final game against Manchester City got a fantastic reception and Hewton deserved to have an even bigger send-off for everything he'd done for the club. Instead, he oversaw a 4-1 loss and then the next day it was just announced that he'd been sacked. Whereas he, and we still haven't said goodbye to him because obviously he hasn't been back with Forrest and now he's gone from Forrest anyway. It would be nice for, it would have been nice for us to, to give him the reception he deserved and the thanks he deserved. Yeah, you might never get the chance now as well, because um, you know, who knows where he's gonna, how his career is gonna go. I hope not. I hope he bounces back and gets himself a sort of uh, mid-table championship side, makes a playoff run, and then gets back in the prem and can come and visit you. But, um, but as you said, he's. I think he's. Um, it's right to say that he's loved by the club, right? Remembered very fondly. But it was the it was the right time to go, and in came Potter. How optimistic were you when the announcement was made? So. I know it's hard to do, but taking away everything you've seen, you saw the name, maybe, I mean, in your case, you probably knew a fair bit about his time in Sweden, but what was the general kind of vibe in the fan base? How optimistic were people that things were going to improve? <laughs> it's difficult, really, because, you know, with hindsight, everyone will say it was a decision that had to be made. It's a fantastic decision. We all knew it was going to be brilliant. But there was also, I remember at the time, I was I was very concerned because you look at other clubs who've got rid of a safe pair of hands in trying to become more attacking or play more progressive football. And it's absolutely killed them. Charlton got rid of Kerbishly and look what happened to them. Same thing with Stoke and Pulis. Uh, Palace is a great example. They got rid of Pulis thinking, right, in comes De Boer. Fantastic. Lost their first seven games of the season without scoring a goal. So, Luckily, they acted fast and saved themselves at least. Yeah, <laughs> say luckily. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, not for you. <laughs> yeah, so there, there was obviously a, a huge element of risk attached to it. But at the same time, it was a risk I think the, the club had to take. And thankfully, they it appears like they've got the appointment right. But there have been times over the, the past two seasons where I, I think you would have doubted whether it was the right one because, you know, Potter is a manager doing the job and he has made quite a few mistakes. but. Whereas another club might have, you know, pulled the trigger and said, right, let's get rid, got nervous because they'd only won two in 19. I mean, Potter's overseen runs of two wins in 19 twice so far, and that's obviously the same form Hewton went for. Other clubs might have said, not working out, but we stuck with them in it. So far this season, touch with it looks like it's reaping the rewards. Would you say that he's, has he exceeded expectations? 
it's it's hard to say really because the yeah in terms of overhauling the squad you know we had a very old squad under Hewton we've now got a young exciting squad yet yeah, ticks that box he has introduced a you know the football we play is a world away from what it was under Hewton tick that box but if you're looking at sort of progress in terms of results and and league positions we finished 15th in his in Potter's first season which was as high as we finished under Hewton we then slipped to 16th last year and for me I look at the squad we had last season you've got Bissouma who could go for 60 million White has gone for 50 million Lamptey when fit is absolute class um, Robert Sanchez in goals been a massive find Lana and Welbeck on their day uh, of quality we've got a squad that for me I think last season should have been doing better than 16th so in that regard it was a little bit of an underachievement but then you look at it and I, I cannot stand XG I have nightmares about it still if we had have played up to our XG last season we would have finished you know we could have finished potentially as high as fifth so he's obviously doing something right and perhaps the missing ingredient was just that clinical centre forward that we need to kick us on to the next level this season we're we're performing to our XG and you know we're sixth in the league so Let's see where we are in, you know, around Christmas time. Yeah, maybe you finally cracked it, that final uh, last little piece that you needed, because as, as much as XG is the, the go-to stat, Brighton are the go-to club for XG, aren't they? They're yeah, the, the go-to example of... The proof that it, it's complete nonsense. <laughs> exactly, yeah, but maybe well, maybe this year could be the proof that after all it it had some sense. Um, So you mentioned a few players, well, you mentioned several players there that are contributing in a big way. Who do you think was a standout performer last season, in your opinion? Who was the by the most important player in the squad? I, I think I'd nominate two. I mean, Basuma's just out of this world. I've never seen a, a player as good as him play for Brighton. I doubt I ever will again. He's he just when you watch sort of a, a world class player, you can tell they're world class because they see stuff happen before it happens. He's always in the right place. He. What he does is he wins you back the ball before the opposition know he's there and then he'll put you on the front foot before they can react to what he's doing. It's just, he's incredible to watch and I cannot believe someone hasn't come in and you know put in a, a, a massive bid for him because he would walk into an Arsenal without a doubt. He would improve a Liverpool. He would probably go into a City and not look out of place. He, he's that good. I think also crucial to us last season and very underrated was Pascal Gross. In the first half of the season, we won two games out of 18, as I already said. Um, I think Gross only started five games, maybe. Potter didn't like him for whatever reason. Second half of the season, he came in. And, you know, we survived, ended up avoiding relegation relatively comfortably. Whereas before he was in the side, we looked like we might have been dragged in. We might have gone down. And how do you see the team getting on this year? I know it's difficult to make a prediction for an exact position, but... It's looking good so far. It looks like maybe finally Potter's methods are going to pay off. I mean, I think that's what the neutral would, would think. But as a fan, someone who's seen it all before, how do, you th- how do you reckon you'll get on? The difference with this season compared to last season is that last season, we didn't beat any of the sides around us apart from Newcastle. So we beat none of the bottom four who finished below us. We beat hardly anyone above us. This season, we've already knocked off Burnley and Watford and Brentford, who you would expect to be in and around the relegation zone with us. So we're winning games this season that we wouldn't have done last season. And 
Whereas last season, you know, we beat City, we beat Liverpool, we beat Spurs. We were we were able to go toe to toe with the better clubs in the league because of the the way we play. They would come and attack. That suited us because we couldn't break sides down. This season, we seem to have developed a knack of of finding a way to get through the lesser sides, which is why we've got nine points on the board already. So if we can combine that with last season's ability to take on the big boys, there's no reason why we can't finish in the top 10. Well, I'm happy to hear that optimism. And I do I do agree. I think most neutrals would agree as well that, at least on paper, you mentioned the, some of the quality that's in the squad and the, and the manager. I do think that, um, like you said, he had some bad runs there, but there's there's definitely... He has the potential to be a really exciting young coach, and I think that I would say you definitely should be looking for sort of twelfth, thirteenth, or above. But I mean, what would represent like a successful season? Are you still, given all the perspective that you've got from your life, are you still sort of in the camp of avoiding relegation is always a success? So Tony Bloom, the chairman, has got a publicly stated ambition that he wants to establish Brighton as a as a top ten Premier League side. We know that's not going to happen overnight because we don't have, you know, the the funds to compete with, with the big clubs. So for me, a successful season is progress on the previous year. That's why I think last season was a bit disappointing because we went we we achieved forty one points, which is the same amount, but we went from fifteenth to sixteenth. So there was, you know, at best we stood still, at worst we went backwards. So for this season, I think a successful season for me is anything over 15th in the table and eclipsing those 41 points. And based on what we've seen so far, we should be able to do that comfortably. Okay, well, before we get into a Twitter question that we have from a Brighton fan and our little quiz that we like to end the show on, we're going to take one more really quick break. And we're back. So before we move on to the quiz, we do have one question from Twitter from a guy called Gary Turrell. You've got mail. And Gary asks, why didn't Glenn Murray get to say goodbye to the fans? <laughs> well, that's uh, the million-dollar question, isn't it? It would have been nice for him to do so, but we all thought that, you know, when the Albion arranged a friendly for this summer that they would let Glenn have 10 minutes or whatever and he could say goodbye, but it hasn't happened. There's also the talk of him coming back as a coach and goodness knows we need someone to coach our strikers and who better than the man who's scored the second most goals in Brighton history. But I think he's quite content with his media work at the minute. He's obviously doing quite well. He's all over the BBC, all over Sky. Um, but it's the same thing with Hewton, isn't it? It would be nice to say goodbye to him. Whether we get the chance or not is, is up to the club, really. I think you're right, though, about the coaching role, because maybe he could be the thing that unlocks the XG. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it was absolutely infuriating because... In 2017, 18, 2018, 19 seasons, he was, I think he was something like the third most clinical striker in the Premier League. So if you, in terms of chances that he put away, so if you put him in a, a Man City side, he would have scored like 25 goals. He's, and he was basically the only reason we stayed up the first two seasons because he was scoring 36, 37% of the goals we were netting. And you, you think in a side that created all those opportunities, even last season, people were saying, God, let's just get Murray back from Watford and put him in the side because he's not going to miss from two years out like Morpai was doing, like Connolly was doing, like Jahan Bash was doing. But, you know, almost from day one, Potter didn't seem to rate him at all. We didn't really give him an opportunity. And it's just one of those things, isn't it? Managers come in, they don't fancy a player for whatever reason, and, and that's the end of it. Whereas, you know, I've, even last season, maybe Glenn had something to something to offer. But 
guess we'll never know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I remember when you first came up, I think it was it's that kind of classic uh, argument, isn't it, about get, you know a guy who scores bags of gold in the, in the championship, but can he do it in the Premier League? And I think that's going away a bit now because we've seen tons of examples now of championship strikers coming up and scoring at least 15, which I think is um, more than creditable. And I think Murray was doing the same, wasn't he? I could have swore he scored at least 15 in one of those first yeah, two seasons. Yeah, I think he got 15 in the second one and maybe 14 in the first, but he just seemed to get better with age because obviously we had him in League One at, at Dean, and it's weird because when he, even when he scored, he scored 22 goals a season, we won the League One title. And even then, you know, fans, he wasn't like a universal hero when you think any player who scores top scores in a title winning season should be. Then obviously Poirier decided he'd rather spend three and a half million on Craig McHale Smith than give Murray a minor pay rise. So he went to Palace on a free. That is obviously completely unacceptable. And even when he came back, you know, we, I mean, I knew and most Brighton fans knew that the reason we didn't go up in 2015-16 was we were two goals away from automatic promotion. If we scored two more, we would have gone up on goal difference above Middlesbrough. You sign a bloke who's going to get you 20 goals, then obviously, and keep the same side, you're going to finish in the top two the next year. But people were still, oh, I'm not sure about Murray. You know, he's he's 33. He's, and obviously the whole Palace thing was hanging over him. But he just seemed to get better with age. And, and that's why it makes you wonder if he still could have contributed in the past two seasons under Potter. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, especially if you just need a goal poacher around the box, if you provide anything else. But who knows? It could have been that, like, like I said, I can't I can't say I'm like an expert on Brighton's tactics, but maybe the system that you're playing, does it need legs up front? Do you need, is Mope, does Mope press a lot? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's absolutely all over the place. He, he works his socks off. And uh, I think sort of you are right in that the system didn't really work. And Murray obviously thrives on two out-and-out winners, balls into the box for him to tuck away. And since we've gone to three at the back, we're playing win-back. So you don't sort of have that, the same delivery from out wide. So maybe, you know, it, Maybe he wouldn't have worked in the system and maybe it's a good thing that, you know, he didn't keep playing because whereas he's now gone out on the top with people wondering, oh God, I wish he, you know, maybe he could have contributed. It's better than everyone thinking, Christ almighty, why is Glenn still in the team? He should have been put out to pasture like years ago. Yeah, it's like a boxer going out undefeated instead of just carrying on and losing five in a row and then you kind of lose the legacy, don't you? It kind of tarnishes the legacy a little bit, so... Maybe for the best, but definitely could come back and offer something at the club, I'm sure, whether it's a coaching role or ambassadorial role. But we shall see. But before we get out of here, we're going to finish with a little quiz that we like to end the show with every week called Do You Know Your Heroes? And I think this will be easy for you. We're going to get straight into it. A lot of these are sort of numbers-based records, but... You can offer up whatever you can, but pretty much if you if you have the name, then we're in we're in business. But if you know more, that's even better. So let's get started. Which player holds the record for the most goals scored in all competitions during one single season? That would be Peter Ward with thirty six, and I think it was the seventy six seventy seven season. I knew you. I told you. <laughs> I, mean, I think we're going to have our first eight out of eight here. I need to get someone to uh, maybe I can get a listener to like actually go down and mark down all these and we can have like a league table and find out but i think we could be looking at our first eight out of eight so one out of eight so far uh who do the club recognize as their all-time top goal scorer uh tommy cook 
correct? And how many goals? 123. Very good. And look, at this part, it doesn't need to happen, but I don't suppose you know the years in which he scored those. It was the 1920s, so between, I don't know, 23 and 31 or something I'll go for. Really close. 21 and 29, but it's two for two. Definitely two for two. But who is the club's all-time post-war top goal scorer? Uh, that'd be Glenn, wouldn't it? They would indeed. And how many? Oh, 111. Very good. Yes, between <laughs> 2008 and 2011, and then second spell 2016 to 2021. Scored 111 goals, which, as you said earlier, is the second most in the club's history and the most uh, post-war. Which player has made the most appearances for the club? Uh, Tug Wilson. Very good. H- how many, do you know? He's in the 500s, 540-odd. Very close. 566 between 1922 and 1936. Ernie Tug Wilson. Very nice indeed. Um, We're getting to a little bit more contemporary now. Brighton broke their club record transfer fee in July 2018. But for who? Who did they sign? Uh, 2018. Uh, Johan Bash. Very good. Do you remember who from? Um, AZ Alkmaar. Very nice. Do you remember the reported fee? Uh, it was either 16 or 17 million. 17. Very good. I know. I knew this was going to be easy for you. It's not that easy for everyone, actually, because some of these are correct. 1920s and stuff. I mean, you could tell that you're really dedicated. <laughs> Got too much time on my hands. <laughs> okay. Um, again, more contemporary one. Who scored the most goals in all competitions for Brighton last season? Uh, Neil Morpai. Very good. Do you know how many goals? I think, was it eight? Eight in 36 total appearances in all competition. Very, very good. Very nice. And on the other hand, who provided the most assists for Brighton last season? It's got to be Pascal Gross. Yes, it was. Do you know how many? That's tough. No. Seven out of eight either way. I will, I'll take a calculated guess and go for ten. Very close. Eight. Ah. Same as the Eight goals. Assists. Same as the goals. And uh, this one might be the one that catches you out because this is a, a kind of fun one that this usually catches everyone out. So we're on seven out of eight. This, this is for eight out of eight. Predictably, England is the national team that is the most represented in Brighton's current first team squad, of course. Aside from England, which country do the most players originate? God, that's a good question. So you've got a bunch, most squads, you've got a bunch of like sort of one and one and two. Yeah. This particular country, there's three players from this country. Do you know which one it is? Oh. I'm going to have to have a think here. (laughs) (laughs) Quickly going through the squad in your head. I want to say, although I can only think of a couple, Spain. Oh, it's only seven out of eight. This is the one that always gets them. It's Spain has two, I think. I think Sanchez and um, can't remember the other one from my Wikipedia research, but it's actually the Netherlands with um, Joel Veltman, Jurgen Lacardia, who I'm aware of. But this this other guy, I'm not so aware of. Um, Kiel Sherpen. This could be a bit uh, of a yeah. trick question. If he's a kid, if he's a 16 year old, then uh... no, he's our he's our uh, new reserve team goalkeeper we've signed. So backup goalkeeper. And to be uh, honest, I've forgotten forgotten about Veltman which is an absolute shocker because he was one of our best players last season and Lucardio I've become a bit obsessed with recently because he just seems to have gone completely insane on Instagram so <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that really 
Well, it could be, I guess the, the Sherpa one is the curveball if he's a new signing as well and only a reserve goalie. But uh, but you did come so close. I think that's definitely the best one we've had for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll take seven out of eight. Seven out of eight is fantastic. Nearly the clean sweep. Maybe one day we'll get there. But that one, we do that one and um, that, that always gets them. And, and the another one is, uh, you know, with the bigger clubs, who was the, the last person to win the World Cup while playing for the team? And then you find that they're going through their head thinking, okay, who won the World Cup? And then do any of our players play for them? And, and all the time, everyone gets that wrong. So... <laughs> But all the re- all the records you are on point, even as far back as nineteen twenty two. You know the records, so I'm very impressed. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, before we go, do you want to plug? Do you want to go into detail about where people can go and, and read your stuff or, or listen to your stuff? Yeah, you can um, read the website at wearebrighton.com, and we're on Twitter, which is at wearebrighton. Fantastic, Scott. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, good luck to Brighton this weekend. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Sporticos Football Stories podcast. Please like, share and leave positive reviews wherever you listen. We really, really appreciate it. Also, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend online or offline. That really helps a small podcast like ours to grow organically. Head to sportacost.com for live streams, data, statistics, and much more from the world of football. You can also follow us on Twitter at sportacost.com. You can follow myself at Craig Sportacost. And we would also love to read out the thoughts and questions of our listeners. So please feel free to tweet those to me anytime or send us an email to show at sportacost.com with your opinions or your questions, and we will get to them on the next episode. Thanks again so much to Scott for coming on today to speak to us. Thanks so much to you for listening and see you on the next episode of the Sportacos Football Stories podcast. Podcast Network.